Let's uh, go on with that reading, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 27. Uh, though as I, I planned out the two sermons, in the course of preparing this sermon, I realized I was never going to get to the various laws. I had too much to say about the laws and the priesthood in general, and so I just set that aside for a second sermon, but we'll likely finish chapter 7 uh, next time. So chapter 6, verse 8 begins really what is a new emphasis, and that is the priesthood. Uh, and their relation to uh, the offerings. Let's go on with that reading. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 27. Likewise, this is the law of the trespass offering. It is most holy in the place where they kill the burnt offering. They shall kill the trespass offering. And its blood he shall sprinkle all around the altar. And he shall offer from it all its fat. The fat tail and the fat that covers the entrails, the two kidneys and the fat that is on them by the flanks and the fatty lobe attached to the liver above the kidneys, he shall remove and the priest shall burn them all uh, on the altar as an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a trespass offering. Every male among the priests may eat it. It shall be eaten in a holy place. It is most holy. The trespass offering is like the sin offering. There is one law for them both. The priest who makes atonement with it shall have it. And the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has offered. Also, every grain offering that is baked in the oven and all that is prepared in the covered pan or in a pan shall be uh, the priest who offers it. Every grain offering, whether mixed with oil or dry, shall belong to all Uh, The sons of Aaron to one as much as the other. This is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes, as his offering, he shall offer unleavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering and from it he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord it shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered he shall not leave any of it until morning but if the sacrifice of his offering is a vow offering uh, or a voluntary offering it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice but on the next day the remainder of it may be eaten the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire and if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day it shall not be accepted nor shall it be imputed to him It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats of it shall bear guilt. The flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. And as for the clean flesh, all who are clean may eat of it. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord while he is unclean, that person shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, the person who touches any unclean thing, such as human uncleanness, an unclean animal, or an abomin- any abomination or, or, or abominable unclean thing, and who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offering that belongs to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any 
fat of ox or sheep or goat and the fat of an animal that dies naturally and the fat of what is torn by wild beasts may be used in any other way. But you shall by no means eat it for whoever eats the fat of the animal of which men offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The person who eats it shall be cut off from his people. Moreover, you shall not eat any blood in any of your dwellings, whether of bird or beast. Whoever eats any blood, that person shall be cut off from his people. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the book of Leviticus and its... uh, intense concern for holiness and for sacrifice and for atonement. Uh, Dear Lord, we pray that through the reading and the preaching of this book, you would deeply impress the importance of such things upon your people uh, and that you you would help uh, as well through the preaching to bring such uh, a thorough text, a detailed text to life in a practical way to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen thus far, chapter 1, verse 1, up through chapter 6, verse 7, uh, the, the various five types of sacrifice or offering laid out. Uh, in the order they were presented, it was uh, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Uh, and having concluded that two weeks ago, uh, we come now uh, to a slightly different emphasis. I would also remind you, as will become clear in in the institution of this priestly service we're considering here, that the order actually looked different in the worship of Israel. It was the sin and trespass offering, then it was the burnt and grain, grain offering, and then finally it was the peace offering. So three main stages, uh, which does not exactly reflect the order here. But what we have now... Is, uh, is a new emphasis. We have the law of each offering. And we might ask, what, what's going on here? What's the point of that? Well, I'll try to make it clear to you. Uh, in the prior text, the emphasis was, if anyone brings his guilt offering, if anyone brings his sin offering, and so on and so forth, the laws were given from the standpoint of God from his mercy seat instructing the people. Uh, who brought their offerings to the tabernacle and instructions and even encouragements concerning those. But here now the emphasis becomes something different. Uh, The laws which are laid out here are the laws for the priests who ministered in the tabernacle and at the, the, the burnt offering altar or the altar of burnt offering, I think it's called, the duty of the priest with respect to those same offerings. And so when you have the law of the burnt offering, the law of the grain offering and so forth, What you really have is, this is how I would describe it, the law of the priesthood with respect to the offerings. And so it's a slightly uh, different emphasis, but it's an important one. The focus now uh, uh, turns to the priests themselves, and it will be uh, to the end of chapter 10. Uh, So chapter 6, verse 8 to the end of chapter 10, we have the priesthood as the, the central focus and the central concern. And, and what I offer here is more of a general introduction to the idea of the priesthood as, as they ministered in the tabernacle. And frankly, more of a devotional sermon on that subject. And so the first thing I would notice is the value of God's law. 
And the reason I would emphasize this first is because we are here reconsidering in a very detailed way the very laws we just looked at in such painstaking detail. And the question which we might have is why such a detailed emphasis once again? You may remember we, we had the same sort of thing in Exodus. The temptation here, and certainly I think we feel this temptation in our Bible reading. I know that I do. You read about the five types of offerings, and then you read the laws of those same offerings. Perhaps you might skim those sections, and I don't know that I would fault you. The temptation here is to become disinterested. The temptation is to ask, Lord, what, why this repetition? Well, as I say, I, I think we feel this most keenly in our own personal study of the Bible. But this is a, an opportunity where the preaching is a help to us, or at least it can be a help to us. For instead of lazily reading these laws over again, I might uh, suggest a different approach. And again, that is, at least in the first point, realizing again the value of God's law. And what I want to emphasize, uh, turning now uh, to, to Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104, which I'll read in a moment, is how the Old Testament Jew felt about God's law. As he read, uh, especially the first five books of Moses, and try to imagine how he felt about it. And, and, and as I read these verses, think of the very laws that we're reading now. This was not a man who was disinterested or who was annoyed by the repetition. But this was a man who delighted and relished God's law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That's how the pious Jew in the Old Covenant felt about God's law. I feel the need to say that, by the way, the pious Jew. Because uh, the sad testimony of the Old Covenant is that the majority of Jews were apostate. And that not all of, uh, who were named Israel were really the true spiritual seed of Abraham. The true Israel. But there were some. There was always a remnant. And there were always some who were able to express, along with David, these words. And what he's expressing here is not just how he felt about the law in general, but in particular. The law of God was something he prized. It was precious to him. Every word of it. He delighted to read it or he delighted to hear it. He delighted to meditate up upon it. Think of Psalm 1. It was something he not only meditated on, but something he loved. Oh, how I love your law. What a help it was to him in knowing the mind and the heart of God. What a help it was to him in learning the ways of God and the ways in which he would walk as a son of God. What a blessing he found in not only knowing but keeping the law. And here I would speak of a twofold blessing. The first, admittedly, is the burden of these verses, and that is the blessing of wisdom and safety. It is of understanding. Of restraint. That's the sense you get. 
as you look at those verses. I keep your laws and I am kept safe from every false way, every dangerous way. But he also found, as a second blessing, so many gospel ordinances. He found the means of grace, the very means of grace set up under the old covenant. He found, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse uh, 16, a favorite verse of mine, grace to help in time of need. In the very law of God. Gerhard Voss, in his book, Biblical Theology, talks about uh, the value of the law in its own right under the old covenant. He says this. The people of God in those days did not live and die under an unworkable, unredemptive system of religion that could not give real access to and spiritual contact with God. Nor was this gospel element contained exclusively in the revelation that preceded, accompanied, and followed the law. It was found in the law itself. That which we call the legal system is shot through with strands of gospel and grace and faith. Especially the ritual law is rich in them. Every sacrifice and every illustration proclaimed the principle of grace. And so what Voss is saying, and I'm agreeing with Voss, that when the Old Testament Jew, the pious Jew, proclaimed his love of God's law, it was not only in its moral precepts, but also its ritual aspects. And it was not just, he says here, through the prophets that he was enabled to hope for something better, the principle of grace realized in the new covenant, but that he was able to find that principle of grace in the very law itself that he loved, especially, as he says, in the ritual, ritual element. That is the ceremonial law in which we find the sacrifices and the priesthood, the altar of grace in the old covenant. That is obvious relevance to our present study. And might we love the law like the Old Testament Jew did and find therein a principle of grace. How obvious that appears in the book of Leviticus of all books. As a second point, I would note the value of repetition. That is the very question I began with. Why the repetition? A repetition which we found in Exodus. We asked the same question there. Repetition which we find here. The modern man becomes, well, he becomes sick of repetition. It's tiresome to him. In fact, I, I was just reminded uh, in the church where I did my internship while I was in seminary, I met uh, with one of the elders. I said, you know, the thing I remember about you, which you emphasized to interns, was don't repeat yourself. Well, it's not something, as I say, the modern man likes. But let us be honest that uh, we are slow to learn. We are no quick to learn or quicker to learn uh, than the ancients, than the Israelites of old. And there is no greater need than that we should be thoroughly instructed in the word. You remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, now, I don't have it quite right in my mind, so let me just turn there, lest I get it wrong. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. And I often get the sense, especially in the Old Covenant, the Lord seems to be indicating that to the Israelites. It really isn't tedious. You might complain, you might groan under it, but the reality is uh, that it is safety for you. And so I would say, 
Let the preacher feel freedom to repeat himself, especially as much as God in his word does so. If God would have us consider the laws of the offerings once again, let us be eager to hear of them. And let us, uh, as hearers, feel uh, and find safety in this. It is a safeguard for you. For we, we are not only uh, often slow to learn, but we are also often interested in novelties or things that are not edifying. Well, is there anything more edifying to the church and anything uh, which is so worth knowing and understanding and speaking of than the great principle of atonement that God sets forth here in the book of Leviticus. Let us be well schooled in it, well learned in this principle, if only so that when we come to the new covenant, we might have a better and a richer appreciation for that principle perfected at the cross and in which we find a full and a free remission of sins. That is edifying, if ever anything was. Andrew Bonar says this, The Lord is not weary of repeating these types, both because of his wondrous love to the sinner and because of his still more unfathomable love to him whom he holds out to fallen man in each of these figures, his well-beloved. You know, we tend to talk about the things that excite us most and that we love most and that we're most eager that others should uh, love and be excited about along with us. And, and you have to realize that throughout this book, the Lord is situated on the mercy seat. He has taken uh, his place at his throne of mercy. And he's saying, this above all is what I want Israel to know about me, that I am a God who is full of grace. I am a God who delights in pardoning the sinner. I know that you would know. Oh, that you would know that about me. This is something in which God delights in. He is revealing his heart to the sinner, to the fearful sinner who is afraid boldly to approach the altar of grace found there. To him, God is saying, come, see how willing I am to pardon you. And by the same uh, means and in the same way, God is encouraging us to, uh, to value these very same things. To have our heart conformed to his. The Lord loves to talk about the sacrifices. He loves to talk about the blood. He loves to talk about the priesthood. Because, as Bonar says, not only is the way of, of forgiveness held forth and prefigured, but what he's really doing here is speaking of his son, his precious son, whom he handed over for our sins, and who stands over the church now as the great high priest. And really, you can't read these things and not think of what is later said of him, especially in the book of Hebrews. And to think now of his ministry, at the mercy seat, the throne of grace, it is called in the book of Hebrews. And so let us delight to hear of this theme repeated over and over as we continue to study the Old Testament in the evenings. But as a third point, I would note uh, and emphasize the priestly service because that's the emphasis here. The law of the burnt offering, the law of the grain offering the law of the peace offering and so forth is the law of the priesthood with respect to those offerings. And so these are, as we've seen, instructions for the priests themselves, the part they had to play in the administration of the sacrifices. 
viewing them here as they were as ministers and custodians or guardians of the old covenant. Like Adam in the garden, uh, these men ministered in the sanctuary of God and they were tasked with guarding and keeping it. And thus the consistent emphasis on holiness and on atonement. Now we've already seen in large measure the part they were to play. Uh, If anyone has a sin offering and so on. Those first five offerings in chapters 1 through the first part of 6. We read the emphasis on the offerer, the common Jew. But in the course of reading that, it was clear in every case that the priest had a part to play. But again... The emphasis here becomes solely upon them and what their ministry there was to look like. The sons of Aaron, their ministry in the tabernacle. Matthew Henry looking at them as ministers under the old covenant, and that's how I'm looking at them as well. The priests, he says, were rulers in the house of God, but those rulers must be ruled. Let ministers remember not only commissions, but commands. And so the Lord is saying to them, here are my rules for you. I'm not only ordaining you to the task, but I'm ruling you in it. In other words, he's calling his ministers to submit themselves to the laws, the laws of the ministry. Common to both testaments. God has much to say to his ministers in the old covenant, but equally has much to say to his ministers in the new. And let every minister see to it that he submits to such laws. At any rate, that's the disposition of the text, what God is saying to his ministers. Uh, what, what was the task of the priests in the tabernacle in relation to God and in relation to the people? The first thing, and, and I have Malachi 2 in mind as I say, uh, as I say these points, uh, and, and recently we preached Malachi, didn't we? The first thing they were were teachers of God's law and his holy word. They were the teachers of Israel. The second thing is they were ministers and dispensers of grace and they were custodians of God's holy worship. They were the ones who ministered uh, over, you might say, the house of God in her worship. Very similar to what ministers are today. In this we could also add, under the second heading, uh, prayers of intercession on behalf of the people. Uh, The very thing we find in our evening worship services. Uh, But the third thing that was emphasized uh, in the priesthood You find this as well in Malachi chapter 2, if you have any interest in reading that later. And the the priests are rebuked for not doing this. They were to live exemplary lives. They were to embody personally the holiness that was exhibited in their garments and in their ordination. Men uh, who were consecrated in the service of the Lord. And so they not only had a holiness that was put on, which they carried about them, especially the great uh, or the high priest. uh, But it was to be. A holiness that was tangible in their living. And if it wasn't, well, go read Malachi chapter 2 and see how the Lord feels about the unholy and the unrighteous minister of the old covenant ministering in his tabernacle. Now, the duty of the people in relation to the priest uh, as corollaries to each of these points was to submit to the teaching. It was to attend to the means of grace and to support those very means with offerings of food and and, uh, bulls and goats and so forth, and then it was to follow him in his example. These are principles which you find throughout Scripture. But as a final point, point, before we come to certain points of application, I would notice as well the importance of the priesthood. 
For it was not enough. Let us get this clear in our mind as we consider the structure, not only of Israel's worship, but of Leviticus itself. It was not enough that the people would bring their offerings to the altar if there was no priest there to meet them at the altar. This is a a principle which I would say, again, in, uh, in common with prior points, that is common to both testaments. That worship depends upon the presence of a priest. And though we do not have priests as ministers in our earthly tabernacles, we have something far better. Again, go read Hebrews. Find the emphasis there. Something far better upon which our worship and our approach to the throne of grace or the altar of grace depends now in the new covenant. And hence the importance of the words, we have a high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. As though to tell believers in the new covenant that as we come into God's earthly tabernacles, we have again something far better. We have not earthly priests but a heavenly one who has gone before us into the very presence of God and who daily and forevermore lives to intercede for his church. And with that confidence, we are encouraged to come week by week into his earthly tabernacles. Points of application. First of all, having just said that, learn the value of the priesthood. That's the new focus. This is what we need to see. We need to value the priesthood. How valuable it was to the Old Testament worshiper who came into those courts wondering whether God would receive and accept what he had to offer to find the Old Testament priests ministering there, ready to receive them and ready to assist them in what they had to offer. What boldness and comfort that gave them in, uh, in that approach, especially those pilgrims who journeyed to Jerusalem into the courts of the Lord to find there, as I say, the priests ministering there awaiting them at the altar of grace. And doubly so in the new covenant, if only we could get a hold of what the book of Hebrews has to tell us. For our very boldness in approaching the throne of grace and corporate worship depends upon Jesus' presence at the altar or the throne of grace. How much value do we find is placed upon the priesthood of Jesus Christ in the new covenant? Especially in the sinner's approach to God. The fearful sinner wondering whether God might receive his worship. Yes, he will. If he comes through Jesus. How valuable indeed does the church find the priesthood of Jesus Christ likewise in our wilderness wanderings along with Israel. We are reminded as well once more of something Hugh Martin said. In his book on uh, the atonement, which I quoted often in those many sermons in the book of Hebrews, he said that the idea of the priesthood has become unfamiliar to many. The church has ceased to be acquainted with such a teaching. Now, in his own day, that was true, but uh, I, I I would only add to that. How much more true is that today? That believers in the new covenant are unacquainted. They are unfamiliar with the doctrine of the priesthood. And Hebrews is not our only opportunity to become acquainted and familiar with it. We should rejoice at the opportunity we have once more now in Leviticus chapter 6 through 10 to consider this great theme. And for this reason, if we are unfamiliar as to this idea, that of the priesthood, how will we ever know what it means to say, 
we have a great high priest in heaven and his name is Jesus. Such uh, an expression will be devoid of meaning and it will be devoid of comfort to Christ's church. We will never know what it means to come boldly into the throne room of God by faith. But I would add to that as well, let us learn to value God's law as the Old Testament Jew did, to value its repetition, to value its essence. Let us, with the Old Testament Jew, value it just as he did and for the same reasons. One of the things that we ought to remember, and and, and again, to, to value the preaching for this very reason, is that we are living, as in the days of the Reformation, in days of biblical ignorance. People do not know their Bibles, and they especially don't know They're Old Testaments. Now that was the crying need of the hour in the days of the Reformation. Biblical, sound biblical instruction. That is the crying need of the hour today. People do not know their Bibles. Let me just ask you, beloved. Do you desire to sit under preaching which instructs? Uh, Do you find that in itself edifying? Just the ability to be better acquainted with your Bibles. In which, as Hugh Martin, to quote him again, says, or to paraphrase at least, a a large place is assigned to the covenants, which means of necessity that uh, there must be a large place assigned to the old covenant as the precursor to the new covenant, and which will also assign a large place to God's law. And do you see, uh, to borrow the argument from Hebrews, the beauty of the new covenant can only be known in its comparison with the old covenant. And does that not compel us to learn as much as we can about it? If only that the greater glory of the new covenant might appear against the backdrop of the old. And and do we not find, let me add, the same God in both? This is really uh, what is, I think, the great discovery uh, to the the one who is well-versed in his New Testament, as he turns to the, to the Old Testament. And what he finds is that the caricature of God as this legal, vengeful, wrathful God. Now, he is those things, but, but solely depicted in that way in the Old Covenant really isn't true. But that what God expresses so well in the Old Covenant, he's been expressing all along. And that is once more his love of, of, uh, of pardoning the sinner. He delights to do it. He delights to show mercy. He stands ready, even in the Old Covenant, to pardon the sinner and to make the provision for that pardon by means of atonement, the shedding of blood, the sprinkling of blood. Again, I say, this is the great discovery, especially in the book of Leviticus, that the believer, well-versed in his New Testament, finds as he reads the Old Testament, and it is that God has not changed. And that this emphasis is not new when it comes to his New Testament. No, it is very old. And seeing that, when we come to that great provision in the New Covenant at Calvary, the beauty of God's provision there is all the more apparent. For there God does what he always intended to do, namely to pardon our sin and to reconcile us to himself. But then, as another point of application, along with the priests of old, let us honor God with our concern to obey all his ordinances. Now, again, if you understand the covenants and you understand the transition from the old to the new, you will know that all of you are priests. None of you are high priests. That place is ascribed and assigned to Jesus alone. But all of you are like the lesser priests of old. 
the sons of Aaron who did not become the high priest, those who minister in the tabernacle of God. And, and so when God speaks to them here and he assigns to them his laws, he's saying, I want you to obey me. I want you to live lives of personal holiness. I want you uh, to embody my holiness in living lives which uh, are in accordance to my law in a very detailed way. And so I'm speaking to you in line with one of the great themes and the great principles of the Reformation. No doubt one which is thoroughly scriptural. First Peter chapter 2, that is, namely the priesthood of all believers. And the New Testament, as we come there, casts the whole of the Christian life and the worship we offer to God in that light. That we are now priests offering sacrifices of praise and obedience to, to him. And what I find is the great lesson of, of both covenants... It stands out with greater clarity in the new, but it stands out, I think, with, with enough clarity, certainly, in the old. And that is, the, the, the more grace he gives, the more holiness he expects. The very ones who dealt with the ordinances of grace were those whom he called to uh, personal holiness. Likewise, the priests of a new covenant. More grace, more holiness. But finally, let us read all of this and see, as we have seen, A fitting type of our Savior. Well, that's going to be the theme of every sermon, isn't it? But it ought never to be a theme that we tire of hearing. We ought to delight uh, to tell uh, the story of Christ as we find him in the Old Covenant just as much as God does. We find a type of our Savior in the priests themselves ministering at the altar of grace. How can you read that and not think of him? We find a type in the sacrifices and the blood and the promise of atonement and forgiveness. We find it in the ashes taken outside the camp where Christ was crucified. We find it in the holiness and purity of the priest, prefiguring his priestly perfection. In all that we read, now that we come specially to the idea of the priesthood, we find him set forth in his priestly work of saving sinners, and we delight to do so. Uh, and uh, with such enthusiasm, uh, May we may we look forward to coming back to these verses again. Let me just read as I close uh, what is said and what ought to be familiar verses by now. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, and then chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. It's a shadow of the good things to come. That's the emphasis. Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But Christ came as the high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Amen. And let us return now our praise to God as we stand together and sing hymn number 90.